Good morning. My name is Kelly Scott, in case we haven't met before. Uh, for the past 23 years, I've served in campus ministry uh, at UVA, along with my wife, Nancy. Uh, I've also been serving in a part-time uh, pastor role here over the past 11 months. And uh, I'm excited to say that beginning um, on July 1st, I'll begin to serve as a, as a full-time pastor here at Trinity. As Jesse pointed out a couple of weeks ago, uh, we are spending some time in the first four chapters of the book of Ephesians before we head into the summer. Chris, our incoming senior pastor, has preached twice on Paul's prayers for the Ephesian church, which are found at the end of Ephesians 1 and the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And on his last visit, uh, Chris helped us to see how Paul's prayers are shaped by Scripture's beautiful vision of God's people, the church, as the living temple of God, the place where God dwells by His Spirit. And then two weeks ago, uh, Jesse preached through Paul's introduction to the letter, where Paul thoroughly describes the immense blessings that we have in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, still up there, yeah? <laughs> um, the immense blessings that we have in the Father, Son, and Spirit, and helped us to see what true blessing is and how we can become blessed by God. I think Jesse's actual words were how we can become hashtag blessed by God, because he just loves social media so much. <laughs> At least that's what I took away. As we begin to walk through chapter 4 this morning, uh, we will continue to see some of these themes from prior weeks, that of the temple, that of Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and so please turn in your Bible in, or, in your order of worship for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You may also find it in your Bibles. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." This is the word of the Lord. Earlier this week on, on UVA's uh, reading day, the day before exams, 
Uh, Nancy and I had uh, student athletes in our home throughout the day for all-you-can-eat pancakes and omelets, as is our tradition. Some of you were there. But these are not just any pancakes. Uh, my amazing wife drives 40 minutes up 29 to Yoder's Country Market to purchase whole grain wheat, and she spends a good chunk of the day, the day before the event, putting the grain through our grinder and mixing 300 pancakes worth of batter for some of the healthiest and best pancakes known to humanity. I can testify that the whole grain, in which the bran and the germ are not separated from the rest of the grain, but are, remain united to the rest of the grain, I can testify that whole grain makes a difference. You can find the recipe on page 17 of your order of worship. <laughs> Over the last few years, uh, I also recently read that, that whole milk sales are on the rise compared to skim milk and 2% milk. And that's not just because people are beginning to realize that milk tastes better than water, but because, many, <laughs> but because many experts have come to believe that the fats and the vitamins and whole milk are actually good for you. And if you are really serious about milk, and I know that some of you are from a picnic conversation last week, you own cows or purchase a share of a cow so that you can drink raw milk that is truly whole because the pasteurization process has not disintegrated or dissolved the proteins and vitamins and enzymes. Now, I'm the furthest thing from an expert on this subject. I don't want to spark any raw milk debates here. And I am, I am thankful for Louis Pasteur. But, but I do know that if I had regular access to the raw milk that I tasted about a decade ago at a Charleston farmer's market, I think I could probably give up ice cream. It was that good. There are many manifestations of the wholeness movement, which I guess has been going on over the past few decades. Fitness manifestations in psychology, spirituality, as well as whole foods, nutrition. Uh, some of those are helpful, some probably not so helpful. But as is the case with pancakes and milk, there is a sweetness and a goodness to true wholeness. In fact, I would say that, that all of us, or at least most of the adults in this room, are here today because we long to be whole. We long for our lives to be whole. We, we know what it feels like for our lives to be disintegrated, for our days to feel scattered, for our thoughts and desires to feel divided or to be divided for our aspirations for ourselves and for our families to feel disconnected from our actual lives, for our bodies to be and to feel less than whole, for our relationships with others to feel fragmented, not the fullness of what we would want them to be. We long for wholeness, fullness, and unity in all of these areas. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us where and how to find true wholeness. To give you a roadmap of where we're going this morning, Paul begins this passage with a command or an imperative. Or in other words, he begins with the how we are to live in wholeness and unity. And then he's going to circle back around at the end of the passage uh, to this command. But in between, Paul gives us some really important things. He gives, us, he gives us the basis 
for this command or imperative. He gives us the basis, which is the unity of God. He gives us the means that God has provided to help us obey this command, which are God's gifts to his church. And he gives us the end goal of the command, which is the whole mature body of Christ. And so taking Paul's lead, I first just want to briefly touch on the heart of the command so that we have it in our mind, and then we'll circle back around with Paul after we've seen the basis, the means, and the end goal of the command. The central command of the entire passage, which is found in verse 2, is to bear with one another in love. We read, bearing with one another in love. Everything else in verses 2 and 3, humility, gentleness, patience, eagerness, they provide important qualifiers for what that love looks like. But bearing with one another in love is central. And so keeping in mind that, that the end goal is the whole mature unified body of Christ, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. Keeping that in mind, what Paul is saying is that wholeness, fullness, unity does not come by making our lives about ourselves. But rather by making our lives about others. It's saying that wholeness, fullness, unity come not from obsessing over our own wholeness or having our lives all together in an order, but rather it comes by bearing with one another in love. And it's really important for us to recognize that much of, much of our culture will approve of us making our lives mostly about ourselves. As long as there are some good uh, giving back to the community bullet points on a resume, our, our culture generally supports doing our own thing and making our lives about self-improvement, self-actualization, as Callie mentioned or Jamie mentioned earlier. I'm not saying it's wrong to take time for ourselves to, to seek excellence in the things that we do. It's not wrong to have healthy but flexible boundaries in our lives so that we don't overextend ourselves. It, it, it's not wrong to take care of ourselves physically and emotionally and mentally. Even as we look at the life of Jesus, there, there were regular times where Jesus stepped away to be alone and to be refreshed. And Jesus had different levels of intimacy and investment with different people, with Peter, James, and John, and then to the Twelve and, and Martha and Mary in these broader circles even Jesus did not attempt to be best friends with 50 people or even, even 20 people. He and his humanity had some relational boundaries. But just as Jesus, the only truly whole person to ever walk the earth, found his life by bearing with us in love and giving himself up for us, we will only find the wholeness that we seek if we actually find our lives and bearing with one another in love. Do you believe that? If I'm honest with myself, there are many times when I actually don't believe that. I believe that wholeness will come by seeking wholeness for myself, by thinking about myself, by seeking to have my life in order. But our passage tells us that we will find wholeness if we actually seek to find our lives in bearing in love with one another. To bear uh, with one another in love, um, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, is what it means in verse 1 to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Carrying over earlier themes from chapters 2 and chapter 3, that calling is the calling to live as the beautiful living temple that Chris taught on a, a few weeks ago. Where not only are the dividing walls between God and humanity broken down, 
But the dividing walls between people, between us, are broken down in Christ. Where we experience the unity and wholeness in our relationships that we long for. We will circle, we'll circle back around with Paul on this command uh, to love and think a little more about what it looks like for us in our context. But before we do, Paul provides the basis, the means, and the end goal of this unity. And so first, uh, let's look at the basis of our unity in verses 3 through 6. To summarize these verses, Paul says that, that we are called to unity because a beautiful unity or oneness is the very center of reality. In verse 3, we, we already see that we are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. As Dr. Stephen Ball points out, we're not called to create or to make this unity. We are called to maintain or preserve a unity that has existed for all of eternity. The Spirit is in perfect unity with the Father and the Son. In verse 4, we read that there's one Spirit. In verse 5, we read that there is but one Lord. And that, that word is most commonly used to refer, refer to Jesus in the New Testament and particularly in Ephesians. And in verse 6, we read there's one God and Father of all. And so just as Jesse helped us to see last week that there is this Trinitarian blessing into which we have been adopted, Paul here grounds our unity in the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I want to I pause here uh, for just a second. If you're just exploring the Christian faith, uh, you, you might pick up on that the Christians are not very good at math, Right? Because we believe that God is both one and three. Scripture teaches that there is only one God, but that he has always existed in three distinct but perfectly unified persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there is a mystery to this reality. Again, it doesn't work mathematically. We, we can't get our heads completely around it. And yet for all of its mystery, the Trinity makes so much sense of who we are and of our longings, our fundamental longings. The Trinity in whose image we are made explains our longing for unity within diversity. E pluribus unum, it's written on our coins, out of the many, one. The Trinity explains our desire for unity within the diversity of male and female. It explains our longing for peace and unity across a diversity of pe people and cultures and nations throughout the world and throughout our city. And as Callie expressed earlier, our corresponding weariness when we hear of more strife or experience strife in our own lives. If we were made in the image of a God who was alone or divided, a divided plurality, it would be much harder to explain our relational longings. But as it is, the perfect unity of Father, Son, and Spirit within a diversity of three persons is the unity that we were made to experience. Okay, Jump, jumping back in uh, to our passage in verse 4. And, and Paul, it gets thick here. Okay, so strap in with me for a few minutes. In verse 4, Paul begins to shift from the metaphor of the temple that began back in chapter 2 to that of the human body. Just as every human being has one body and one spirit, so the church has one body and one spirit. One body, which is the community of all believers, united together by one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we see here that corresponding to the one spirit, we see one hope. 
Why, why is hope placed next to the Spirit? Well, it's likely, because, it's likely because the Spirit of God, who already indwells believers, as we read last week, is called a deposit or a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance that is to come. The spiritual resurrection that the Spirit has already produced in us and is slowly but surely working out in the life of every believer gives us assurance and hope of the completion of our redemption, the fullness of life with God in a resurrected and renewed creation. Because the Spirit is in us and working in us and speaking to our hearts, we have this hope. In verse 5, corresponding to one Lord Jesus. We see that this hope is based on one faith. And this is best understood as describing, as describing the objective content of our faith, which centers on the finished work of Christ, taking the judgment for our sin and rising to give us new life. It's the same faith for Jew and for Gentile. Likewise, we read that there's only one baptism for believers, which is baptism into union with Christ and his death for our sin and his resurrection to new life and in his eternal fellowship with the Trinity. And that baptism is outwardly signified by water. Even the bloody sign of circumcision in the Old Testament, which was the central identifying marker for Jewish families, even the bloody sign of circumcision pointed ahead to Abraham's offspring and the cross and is fulfilled in Jesus. So now, that there, so now there is only one entrance sign into God's family, one baptism for Jew and Gentile and everyone who believes. Finally, in verse 6, we read, One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This, this type of expansive language for God in the New Testament usually points to God's rule, not just over the body of Christ, but his rule over all things. And so these words are pointing to the day when God will rid the world of all rebels and rebellion against him, and his redeemed people will be at peace, not just with him and with one another, but also with creation itself. If you want to read a little bit more about this, go to the, and you're taking notes, go to the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, the end of chapter 34, or Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah 65, or the end of the book of Amos, chapter 9, or the last couple chapters of Revelation, you will see all of creation will be made whole with every part working together properly by a Father who is over all and through all and in all. All to say that verses 3 to 6 make it very clear that we are not called to create unity or to make up our own basis for unity. We are called to participate in a divine unity that has always been. Somewhere along the line uh, between Nancy and I having our first child and then another one and another one and then after a while another one and another one, um, we, somewhere along the line, we, we received some really good advice uh, about parenting that I'm sure many of you have received as well. And that was to remember that, that no matter how many kids we have, no matter how many parent-teacher conferences and piano lessons and soccer games that we had, that the nucleus of our family has to be, and in fact is, our marriage. That each child is a very welcome addition, but not the center. 
And this is a picture that, that God has woven into the fabric of this world of welcoming us into the orbit of the Trinity. The wonderful thing about grace is that we can experience this union with God whether or not we experience it in our earthly family. And I want you to see that this, this basis of unity is really the gospel. That, that God invites us into a unity and a fellowship that, that we did not bring to him, that he brought to us, that he invites us into. In fact, we, we screw up that unity and fellowship and fullness and wholeness all the time. And yet through Christ, God forgives us and he brings us back in and he restores us to the unity that we were created for, the unity within diversity. Father, Son, and Spirit is the basis of our unity. And second, the means of unity. In verse 7, uh, Paul moves on. He says in verse 7 that God's grace is apportioned to each one of us. And in verse 8, uh, Paul is seemingly quoting Psalm 68 where we read, uh, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The image here is, is one of a triumphant king returning to the city, returning to the home city with the spoils of war and giving gifts to the people. And that's a simple enough image for us to understand. And yet this is one of the more debated parts of the letter among scholars. Because if you flip to the Old Testament and read the passage... Psalm 68, 18 says that the victor receives gifts from men, not that he gives gifts to men. Is Paul misquoting the psalm? Uh, or did he innocently mistake a word as he pulled it from memory? Is he quoting an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew or an early Christian hymn that, that's not the psalm itself? There are a number of, of explanations but I would argue that where most of them probably go wrong is that they narrow in on the one verse, Psalm 68, 18. It's a myopic view of the psalm. Because if we pull back the lens a little bit and we read all of Psalm 68, we see that the psalm is about God coming to the aid of his people and shattering his enemies and returning to his temple in glory. Yes, he receives gifts from men. Uh, in the psalm, he, he receives gifts from the kings of the earth. But we also read in the psalm that the women at home divide up the spoil. And actually, the final word of the psalm is that the God of Israel gives strength and power to his people. And so what we see is that, that Paul is actually being faithful to the, the psalm as a whole. He's not simply or woodenly quoting one verse, he is summarizing the entire message of this psalm. If we pull back the lens even further to see all of Scripture, Paul's showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm, as he is of the entire Old Testament, of God, Yahweh, coming to the aid of his people, con conquering sin and death and the devil by descending to the grave and ascending on high, to pour out the Spirit and to pour out his gifts on his people. In verse 11, what is unique about the gifts here is that they're people gifts. They're not possession gifts. First came the apostles and prophets, whom Paul says in chapter 2 formed the foundation of the church, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And on this foundation, God continues even today to give evangelists doesn't say TV evangelists, it's just evangelists who proclaim the good news and whose work 
is at least partially, if not mostly, devoted to inviting people in to the body who do not yet know Christ. God continues to give shepherds to his people who are to nurture and care for and disciple the body. We've talked quite, about, quite a bit about this, um, this calendar year. And God continues to give teachers who are to build up the body by thoroughly explaining the scriptures and equipping the people of God with the transformative truth of the gospel. A few of you will be very familiar with verse 12 regarding the equipping of the body for the work of ministry. In church leadership kind of stuff, it's, it's a pretty popular verse. And the Greek text is actually unclear here as to whether the, the work of ministry in verse 12, uh, whether the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ is to be the work of these evangelists and shepherds and teachers so that they remain the subject throughout verse 12, which for you grammarians would mean we'd add a comma after saints. Um, and, and that's how Calvin and, and most of the old translations uh, take this passage. Or on the other hand, whether the saints, which is all of us, become the subject of the work of ministry in the building of the body, as in our ESV translation and in most modern translations. I actually don't know. <laughs> I don't know which one is right. What I will say is this, though. Whichever one Paul is affirming in this specific verse, both are true, and we should not downplay one at the expense of the other. The Lord does provide gifted servants to equip and to prepare the body, to do the work of ministry, to build up the body. And we should recognize that these are God's gifts to serve his church, and we should make full use of them. And yet it's also true, and we see it affirmed in verse 7 and in verses 15 and 16, that every part of the body is called to join in the work of ministry and into the building up of the body of Christ. All of us, all of you are called to participate in inviting people in, in the mold of the evangelist, and building up those who are already in, in the mold of the shepherds. Even if you are not an ordained evangelist or you are not an ordained shepherd, we are all called to participate in the work of the body. And that leads us to the end goal, verses 13 to 16. The image we are given here is one of maturing into a grown man, a perfected man with Christ at the head, complete in knowledge, full of wisdom, not, not deceived by false doctrines, able to discern and sift truth and error from the latest theories and teachings, not blown and tossed about by them, full of health and vitality, each part working properly. When our physical bodies are not whole, we know it, don't we? we? We are acutely aware when the parts of our body are not working properly. For the past few months, um, I've had a little something going on in my shoulder. And even though it's not a huge deal, uh, tissues are in the back, um, even though it's not a huge deal, I, I am very aware that something is not right. Every time I go to shake someone's hand or reach up, I'm very aware that something isn't right. I don't want to be the shoulder guy for the next month, so I just gave you the update. Right? <laughs> Some of us have always lived and or will always live this side of the new creation with something in our bodies that is not right. And what do we do when something is not right? 
Well, to the extent that we can, we seek healing. We seek repair. We seek wholeness until the parts of our body are working together as they should. And to do this, what do we do? We seek truth about how our bodies were created to work and the truth about what will bring healing and repair. We do extensive research. We spend a lot of time on Google search. We, we go to people who know true things called doctors. Every year, our society pours billions upon billions of dollars into finding out the truth about how our body works and how to best heal it. A number of you spend your days seeking that truth and applying that truth in your vocation. And we do all of this because we know that in order to love and to serve people well and caring for their bodies, that our care cannot be based on false knowledge. But rather, we must understand our bodies as they really are. And so it should not be surprising that in Paul's exhortation to Ephesian Christians and to us, that there is this emphasis on knowledge and truth. Knowing the world and the story of the world as it really is in order to attain to the fullness and wholeness of the body of Christ. In verse 13, attaining to the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, both knowing, both knowing truth about him and experientially knowing him. The two go hand in hand, just as med school and residency go hand in hand. In verse 15, speaking truth to one another in love. You see, our culture affirms the need for truth about the body in medical care, uh, for the most part. But our culture has largely rejected even the existence of truth for how we are called to love and care for one another in this world outside of medicine. But according to Scripture, non-medical care is not directionless or truthless. Love is not directionless, but must be directed by truth so that we can call one another to live in the world as it truly is, as God created and tended, and not how it is not. And so this means that in order for us to bear with one another in love and to seek the wholeness of the body with every part working properly, we need to be growing in knowledge at least as much as physicians do. Growing in our understanding of what it means to live in the grace of Jesus. Growing in our understanding of God's nature, his character, his holiness. Growing in our understanding of God's design for singleness and marriage and sexuality and family and friendships. Growing in our knowledge and our understanding of our purpose, our work, our rest, and our leisure. Growing in knowledge in, in all of these ways by being students and disciples, by being doers, by being students of his word, by being doers of his word individually and corporately. You see, it's only as we are growing in the knowledge of the Son of God that we will be able to speak the truth in love so that we will grow up into him who is the head into Christ. Some of us are, are more prone to speak the truth without love, and other of us, others of us are more prone to try to love without truth. But circling back around uh, to the command to bear with one another in love, as Paul does, uh, by adding the words in love to the command, speak the truth, um, I want to ask, what about the need for truth to be spoken in love, uh, right? We, we've talked 
quite a bit about the need for love to be directed by truth, but what about the need for truth to be spoken in love? And I want to ask ourselves three questions. I want us to ask ourselves three questions as we conclude. First, we need to ask ourselves, are we connected enough to the body of Christ to be aware when one part is hurting and not living in the fullness of Christ? We are acutely aware of the pain when one part of our own body is not working. Do we feel the pain when part of the body of Christ is not thriving? Would other people know when we are not thriving? And if not, I just want to ask, what would it look like to be more connected? You are, in fact, connected in Christ. But experientially, what would it look like for you to be more connected? Second, When we do speak truth, do we tend to speak that truth from a place of pride or from a place of humility, gentleness, patience, eager for unity? When a doctor seeks to bring healing to a part of the body not working properly, there may be some pain, but a good doctor seeks to do so with the greatest care and tenderness possible so as not to make the body worse in the long run or not to drive the patient to another clinic. Yes, they are willing to inflict some pain to bring healing, but there is not even a hint of joy in the pain inflicted. Can we say the same when we speak truth to one another? The same Dr. Stephen Ball that I mentioned earlier says this. He says, The walk characterized by all humility and gentleness is easy to project in a vacuum or when surrounded by admirers and friends. But now Paul gives shape to what genuine humility and gentleness looks like when they enter the crucible of real life in the church, patient forbearance with one another in love. One can easily tolerate a mildly irritating personality, but patience is especially needed for the foolish or difficult brother or sister in Christ. It's probably worth bearing in mind that all of us are probably that foolish or difficult brother in Christ to someone, and it's definitely worth bearing in mind that Jesus' love toward us is patient. He is patient toward us in our foolishness. He is patient with us in our waywardness. Are we showing his patience and love as we speak truth? And finally, I want to ask, are we engaged in what I would say is the best medicine, which is preventative medicine or fitness, speaking and growing in the truth before there is a crisis? You see, true shepherds ordained or not are not only involved when there's a fire to put out or a crisis or a runaway sheep. A shepherd would not be a shepherd if they were only an emergency shepherd. True shepherds are are consistently involved in leading the sheep to pasture and water, daily involved in leading the sheep to pasture and water, consistently on the lookout for lost sheep from other pens until the whole body is fully formed in Christ. This is how Jesus is with us. He is with us every day. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is our constant shepherd. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we uh, have confessed this morning and we do confess that we often fail to bear with one another in love. Lord, we are quick to seek to find wholeness in ways that will not bring wholeness and unity. 
we are sick to we are we are quick to pursue um, wholeness through selfish gain by focusing on ourselves. But Lord, you call us out of that. You call us in to the wonder of your unity, of your love from all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, we need you. And we pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to reflect your love, that we might bear with one another in love, that we might show patience, that we might show true humility, that we might truly seek one another's good. Lord, would you pull more and more people into this local body who are truly connected, doing life with one another, that we might find out the fullness of your love, that we might become mature, whole in you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.